Hello, and welcome to episode two of Through the Eyes of Joey. Well, at our last episode, we talked about and ended with the Cayley. We were talking about the Irish jig um, and how Michael Bowden, Joey's father, used to dance the, the jig and play the violin. But in this episode two, we're going to be talking a little more in depth about uh, Michael James Bowden, uh, Joey's father, and a little bit more about uh, Ellen Egan, a.k.a. Helen Bowden. Um, so I'll just, just you know, dive right in. Um, Josephine's father, Michael James Bowden Jr., he was born October 8th, 1873, in Rochester, Minnesota. And he passed away February 2nd, 1945, in Chicago, Illinois. Um, When he passed away, he passed away at a separate address, actually, than his wife, Helen Bowden. Um, And there's reasons why that particular thing occurred. But um, so the... I think it's said in his obituary that he died of a heart attack. Um, And he is buried with the Bowden family in in Minnesota. So that was a nice thing to see. But um, Joey writes, My father used to call me Mooney Mush. I had a very round face. And when my dad would take me to a bakery as a special treat, every once in a while he would take me, He would buy me a chocolate eclair filled with custard, real custard. He would have one, too. Well, I loved chocolate eclairs filled with real custard so much that I would put too much of it into my mouth at one time, and my cheeks would puff up, and my face would look more round like the moon. And my dad would laugh. He would look at my face and say, Oh, Joey, you're my little moony mush girl. I was so excited to be with my daddy at a bakery for a special treat. Sometimes this would happen when my dad would take care of me for the day. Those were special times with my dad. I remember one piece of advice he gave me. He said once, it was a saying of Socrates, to know thyself. He said, quote, you will never go wrong if you know yourself and know what you are about, end quote. So that is a Michael James Bowden quote. But my father, he couldn't take any lies. He wasn't that type, you know. There were some things, I have to say, he didn't want to talk about, ever. But I would ask him something point blank, and I would get the truth. He was a very truthful man. He had integrity. Other times, my dad would tell me uh, about languages. You know, he'd talk to me about uh, the um, Indians, the Indian language, um, Native American, and money. A picaoon was a nickel. A picaoon was a, a Spanish coin. It was worth half a real. But it was, had also something to do with the French. I don't know, like a real of some kind in uh, Louisiana. Anyway, so when I wanted a nickel, you know, I'd ask my dad, I'd say, 
I want a picayune. And he'd give me one. When I was in my early teens, one time I was whistling throughout the house. I was whistling a tune. My dad said, quote, Joey, a whistling girl and a crowing hen won't come to a very good end. End quote. I asked my dad what that meant, and he said, quote, It's not very ladylike for a woman to whistle or chew gum. Horses cross their legs, and women shouldn't smoke. Be a lady. End quote. I shrugged my shoulders. My parents were older, and sometimes I used to think they were so old fashioned. But I guess they meant well. My dad never had a hardened drinking side to him. He drank, but in fact, he could be a real pussycat, and he was very social. He was firm, but never hardened. He was a man of principle and clean, no womanizing in his life, and he had morals. We women, he felt, had to be and act like ladies. Now, I'm just going to note here that Josephine scratched through the next line of her written testimony. It is unknown why she scratched it out or preferred to omit it. For posterity, however, the line she wrote and scratched through reads, quote, he wouldn't lie about anything. He didn't have to, end quote. Joey continues, My dad never lost a paycheck during the Depression. Postal clerks got paid because they worked for the federal government, not the city, like my mother. My father did not take a civil service exam for the federal government, but my mother's lack of police pay during the Depression at times was noted. Thank God we were comfortable, and the federal government paid my father, which is why our home was open to relatives during this time. But my dad, he separated women, you know, women in the home and out. And he could show his disgust in a hurry. As an example, I call it the brat act I did. It was insufferable. I told my mother that my sister Mary smoked cigarettes. Mary had come home from Hollywood for a visit And I saw the cigarettes in her purse, and I told my mother, and my mother blew her top. She told Mary, the next thing would be drinking in bars, drugs, etc. And my mother went on and on. Having witnessed the, quote, dregs of Chicago, end quote, as a policewoman, she would not be allowed to return to Hollywood. No way with that. And my mother stormed out of the house. She had to go and cool off, I I guess. It was quite a scary blow to her, her beautiful daughter smoking. My mother said she, Mary, had visions of Hollywood that weren't plum fairies. Anyway, I was beside myself because I had turned my sister in like that. All of this, while my dad sat there in the chair, calmly patting tobacco and smoking his pipe. It was very pensive, somewhat serious. My sister Mary, she turned, she looked at my dad, and she said, Dad, do you think it's so bad that a woman smokes? My dad calmly looked at Mary, and he said, 
Mary, it isn't very ladylike for a beautiful girl like you. And that's all he had to say, and peace reigned. And my mother called in a good friend of hers. It was a priest. His name was Father Primo. Primo, he, to talk about Mary going back to Hollywood, such and such, is it okay? And he assured my mother of my sister's high standards and morals and suggested my mother forgive and forget and let her return to work. Mary went back to Hollywood. But P.S., I never smoked in front of my father, ever, because I was too ladylike. Historical note. When Helen Bowden was angry with her daughter Mary because of the fact she found out she was smoking cigarettes in Hollywood, this was a time when Chicago was suffering the effects of various habit-forming drugs, such as opioids. Yes, they had an opioid addiction crisis in Chicago in 1919. So, you know, things circle back around. Oh, and how, oh, oh, how easily we forget. Anyway, these opioids were used by certain members of society in Chicago. And starting in the winter of 1919, when the narcotic epidemic was at its very height, um, an investigation was conducted in the form of like court proceedings. And a jury was impaneled and testimony was taken. They had representatives from the federal government, the police chief, the county board. They had the Chicago sheriff there, the Chicago state's attorney. They had the corporation council. They were all invited to sit in on the, the morals commission's meeting. Now, the morals commission's meeting just so you guys know, this was a, um, the Morals Commission was formed between those eight years of progress I was telling you about, um, between 1915 and 1923. This was from Mayor Thompson. They were also trying to deal with not just drinking, but they were trying to deal with just um, undisciplined social behavior. So this, this commission was formed, and when the commission invited all these people, they also invited drug addicts, and these drug addicts were brought in from the underworld to give, under assumed names, the history of their drug-addled downfall. And the ensuing publicity had a decided positive effect um, in more stringent activity on part of the uh, the federal government. And the consequence was there was a lessening of uh, drug addiction. So I guess it goes without saying that Helen Bowden, as a policewoman, had indeed seen up close the results of what drugs could do to a person. And she feared for her daughter's morals under that, you know, Morals Commission Code of Conduct in the city of Chicago. And one of the most important results of the Morals Commission in the city of Chicago was also the demonstration that a hospital or a sanitarium can be conducted and patients can be treated without the use of powerful habit-forming drugs and deadly narcotics. Uh, the Morals Commission Department was overseen at that time by J.P. Brushingham during the years 1915 to 1923, eight years of progress, approximately. 
And he and his commission also helped to clean up the um, moral issues um, that were occurring in the public dance halls, say with the dancers, the fan dancers, and the pool rooms, which we know that means gambling. And uh, they helped to exercise an effective censorship also over theatrical performances, which again goes back to the fan dancers and, and uh, the, the burlesque uh, nightclub-y kind of things. Joey continues. As I recall, my dad, Michael Bound, he remembered the Indian, the Indians in the wars in Minnesota. They were still going on when he was young. He would talk about the Blackfoot and the Sioux Indians. He said the white man was so terribly unfair to the Indians. Perhaps instead of wars, I guess they're maybe more like skirmishes. He must have been very young, but he remembered these earlier issues, and even the one in 1890. It was talked about at this time, I guess, and Michael was, my father was very sensitive and had a lot of sympathy and compassion for others. As a side note, though, my husband's grandfather, Hal Sobel's grandfather, uh, David Gershon, had talked about the Indians as he, his grandmother, and his family had lived in Minnesota for a time. And the story was that David Gershon was the firehouse boxing champion of the city. And he also said, and I note and quote, this is David Gershon speaking, quote, the only good Indian was a dead Indian, end quote. Quite a difference, I'd say, in the thought of dad's, Harold's, Hal's step-grandfather, you know, and my father, Michael Bowden. Historical note here. Josephine states that Harold Sobel's grandfather was David Gershon. In actuality, David Gershon was not Harold Sobel's biological grandfather, but his step-grandfather. Hazel was not a child born from her mother, Sophie Grossman's marriage to David Gershon, but from a quick-lived marriage prior to a man by the name of Willie Mendelssohn. On the marriage certificate or on the marriage document, it says Mendelsower, but really, I believe in some way, shape, or form, some things were altered, maybe even misspelled. He did. Perhaps this fact was not shared with Harold during his lifetime, and therefore even Josephine was unaware of this. Or it was an inconsequential fact to the family narrative in general, so they didn't really care. But two years ago, when I was doing my DNA with 23andMe and Ancestry, I had all of these DNA, you know, Ancestry genetic matches coming up. And I found the Gershon family. And one of the Gershon family members was a grandson uh, of Rose Gershon. And Rose was, and there was a married to, but Rose was the sister of David Gershon. And yet, Gary, uh, Dr. Garvis and I had no DNA corollary. We did not share any DNA. So I thought that was odd, you know. So I reached out to Gary Garvis and uh, I said, hey, you know, um, my great-grandfather, David Gershon, 
um, was your uncle. But we don't share any DNA, but I see you in the, in the DNA there, in the uh, DNA pool in Ancestry. And we talked for a couple weeks, and it actually came out that we, he was able to illuminate the fact that David Gershon was a number of years younger than Sophie Grossman. And David didn't quite get along with his family all that well. He was a bit of an odd duck, Gary said, that his grandmother told him the story of, of her brother, David. He was a bit of an odd duck, and um, he ended up not doing well with the family, and he kind of bifurcated off from the Gershon family. And at 17 years old, he somehow met Sophie Gershon, uh, Sophie Grossman, and she already had a child, Hazel. Um, but they fell in love or whatever it was. They, they got married. Uh, David Gershon and Sophie Grossman got married, and David adopted Hazel. Now, for the record, just so you know, Sophie Grossman and David Gershon never had any biological children of their own. The only child that they ever had and shared was Sophie's daughter from, I believe, it was Willie Mendelssohn, because she married him almost a year and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer, before Hazel was born. And then it was a quick marriage undone. Um, And, of course, now she has Hazel. So that's the story on that. Um, So David Gershon was not actually our biological great-grandfather. Joey continues. But like I said, you know, uh, my father, there was something still going on. When my father lived, Michael Bowen, when he lived in uh, Minnesota and the Indian Wars, there was still something going on, I think, uh, regarding the white and Indian skirmishes in their day in Minnesota. My dad told me. Um, and there was relationship tension, you know. There was tension between the white men and the local citizens and the Native American living among them in the north-south Dakota, Minnesota in the 1800s. Another historical note here. Michael Bowden, for having said that he was, Joey said he was very sensitive and had a lot of sympathy and compassion for the Native Americans, and perhaps he did by the time Joey came along, and he had, you know, a few decades to kind of consider himself and and how life can be terribly unfair to people who are immigrants or different than us, maybe his feelings had changed, but Michael Bowden was recorded through census records and per a newspaper article as living in Flandreau, Moody, South Dakota in 1890. Michael Bowden Jr. was 17 years old at this most poignant time in history. He was old enough to understand and experience the cultural tension from the last resistance of the Lakota Sioux in South Dakota. And in 1890, at the Battle of Wounded Knee in South Dakota, the major confrontation in the long war between the United States and the Native American tribes from the Great Plains took place. 
And after killing Sitting Bull, the 7th Cavalry rounded up the Sioux at this place in South Dakota, where he was, and 300 natives were, uh, Native Americans were murdered. Uh, I think only a baby survived, and 30 Cavalry soldiers were killed. 19 were wounded. So this would be something that was within the framework of memory uh, for, for Michael Bowden, Joey's father. Now, number two on the historical note, regarding David Gershon, Harold Sobel's stepfather, I cannot find any evidence anywhere that he was a firehouse boxing champion in Minnesota. I'm not going to say it's not true. Um, I've looked at his stature. I've looked at his physique. Um, and I looked at what he did. There's some record that he worked on headstone monuments. There's a record that he was working for a time as a roofer. There's a record for a while that he actually went into partnership with a man in Chicago, and they dealt with secondhand goods, which means it was kind of like an antique antique store or consignment kind of business. Um, so, I mean, I can't imagine that he would have been a boxer, um, but he was a roofer at some point in his life, in his life and um, he was a very dedicated and well-known figure in the Mason's Lodge, where he belonged. Uh, he, was, um, he was a brother in the lodge, and he was very high up in the Mason's. Even his tombstone has the uh, Mason's logo on it. But as to whether David Gershon ever stated, quote, the only Indian is a, a dead Indian, end quote, I, I cannot verify that statement either. David was, David Gershon was a taller, more stocky man in one of the pictures I have obtained from the Gershon family uh, album, and it was offered to me through his nephew, Gary Garvis. Um, so I have a lot of pictures of the Gershons, and it's actually, their actual name was Gershonovitz. It was not Gershon, but of course, like many immigrants who came here, they, they got rid of the Witz, they got rid of the Owski, um, you know, they got, they got rid of the Vich. So, you know, that's, that's what happened with that. Number three on the historical note, the Blackfoot are one of the six main uh, Plains Indian tribes. And they were called Blackfoot by the white settlers uh, who noted that their moccasins were black. They were black on the bottom from walking across the burned prairie. So the Blackfoot was a powerful tribe. And the most important Blackfoot was named Crowfoot. And he lived and he led a tribe of Blackfoot into Canada, subsequent to being forced onto a reservation there from his actual homeland in Minnesota. Very sad. But Crowfoot's last words were documented by a, a gentleman by the name of Clark Tibbetts in the hours just before Crowfoot passed away from tuberculosis. He was uh, 60 years old. And I wanted to read you this quote because when I started doing this research and I found this quote, I was very surprised because on my wall in my home, going up my stairs, I have had this crowfoot saying for a number of years. So I'll read it to you now. Crowfoot said, quote, What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. 
Crowfoot, 1830 to 1890. He died a number of hours after saying and speaking those words. Number four on the historical note is the Lakota Sioux Indian were also part of the Plains Indians that people in Minnesota had to contend with and deal with. So the ancestors of the Sioux came from Asia to North America about 30,000 years ago. And the name Sioux means little snake or enemy. And they lived on the Great Plains between the Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains. That's now Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And Michael Bowden also lived in Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota. So really, when we look at the history of Michael James Bowden Jr., Joey's father, he really had tangible, upfront, close-hand experience with the anger and the feelings uh, white men had about the Native American. He knew a lot of the facts of what had gone on about the Native Americans and the white settlers and the real estate issues that they had during that time. And the fifth point on this is Michael Bowden, like I said, had the first man, white, white man experience. He was living among the Native Americans in Minnesota and in Flandreau, South Dakota Territory. So the conflict between the Sioux and the Cheyenne Indian and the federal troops over lands in the Dakotas were in the mid-1870s. They ended with the Battle of the Bighorn. And Michael Bowden was born in 1873 in Rochester, Minnesota, right smack in the middle of that war between the Sioux and Blackfoot in that state. And in his youth, he had to have seen and experienced generational cultural clashes with the Sioux and the white immigrants who wanted, the white immigrants wanted the Sioux land for farming and homesteading and for a little bit of cattle grazing. But the Sioux and the Blackfoot were trying to cling to their ancestral traditions, their homeland, and they would saber-rattle, and the Native American would, you know, make contact in the towns with the settlers, but the Native American was slowly pushed out and onto other locations called reservations, using treaties as a tool for compliance and reassignment and bargaining chips. So during his youth in 1895, when Michael Bowden was a young 21-year-old fella and a new father, by the way, to a three-month-old while living in Flandreau, South Dakota, he engaged in some rather unscrupulous contact with the Sioux in the town. And the story of that encounter can be found in a newspaper article dated March 25, 1895. It was a rather small article printed in the Sioux Falls newspaper. And the article was titled, A Big Tear, Tear, like a tear on your face. And the article states, Outrageous treatment of an old Indian woman by some young bloods of Flandreau, March 26th. Quote, George Ryan, Ed Crabtree, Michael Bowden, and L. Lemure, all young men of the city, after filling up on Flandreau booze, proceeded to the house of an Indian woman named Granny Weston. The old Indian woman has a daughter named Eliza, who does not bear the best of reputation morally. The young men broke into the house, 
bursting open the door and then proceeded to commit outrages upon the Indian women and turn things upside down in general around the premises. They were brought up on police court today on the charge of housebreaking, and they will have their trial tomorrow. Most of the young men are of good families here. It is quite probable they will be bound over to the next term of court. And then the next day in the Sioux Falls newspaper is another article dated March 28, 1895. And the article is titled, The Housebreakers on Trial. And the article states, quote, Business and police court, police court circles have been quite lively in Flandreau for the past few days. Last Saturday night, several of Flandreau's young men got a fair-sized jag, that means an alcohol buzz, a jag on, and proceeded to the house of one Eliza Weston, an Indian woman who resides in the suburbs of town. And after breaking open the door to her house, proceeded to hold high carnival within and around the premises. They had been followed by a couple more men who were along there with them to see the fun. The result was that Monday, all the young gentlemen, six in number, were arrested for housebreaking. The charge of housebreaking was withdrawn against two of the men. Their preliminary examination has been progressing before Justice Taylor for the past two days. The state, who's representing the Indian women, is represented by attorney J.Q. Adams and the defense by attorney H.D. James. Most of the young men are from good family here and it will probably teach them to be a little more careful in the future and what they do when they're under the influence of poor whiskey, end quote. And that, my friends, I'm going to leave you on that note to think about those articles and those situations as it pertains to Michael James Bowden, Jr. I'll talk to you and see you on the next episode of Through the Eyes of Joey.